Vital Educators podcast is hosted by self-development coach, investor, and renowned educator, Ahmed Saqib. Ahmed will speak to fellow educators, young professionals, ordinary people like you and me about their life choices that allowed them to become successful in their careers. He will also delve deeper into the psychology and their perception of success, the good, bad, and the ugly. For young students, he will discuss techniques to help you with your learning and development. Ahmed is committed to helping you determine what you want to do in life. He will share his own life experiences of self-discovery and self-realization that has led him to launch this venture. So this podcast is for anyone who wants to know more about various paths to becoming successful in any profession or passion. Hi guys, Ahmed here from Vital Educators. So today I have an extremely interesting guest on. She's a postdoc at Purdue University, and of course uh, she's an, she has holds an academic position. Also works in en- environmental policy as well. So today we're going to talk about various aspects of that. Rox, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Of course, it's a pleasure. I'm doing pretty well. Pretty well. I wonder why is that pretty there? Why aren't you doing extremely well? Why am I not doing extremely well? <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, I could be doing extremely, extremely well too. I guess that's just my go-to, my go-to response. How okay. are you? Oh, okay. uh, I'm are very you, good. I'm very good. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excellent. Well, I went for a hike <laughs> yesterday. Uh, so I had a, a really, really good sleep because once I hike and when I'm in nature, I find myself to be yeah. relaxing and, and when I come back, I'm so tired that I knock yeah. out straight away. So, oh my gosh. Was, yeah. It was awesome. So I really enjoyed myself. So I know that you hold a postdoc position. So mm-hmm. I think I'm going to start with a um, core question that my listeners would be interested in, which is sure. how did you get into the position that you are right now? How did you get, because postdoc position, for those of you who don't know, is a position that you hold after finishing your PhD. So how did you get into that position in the first place? Well, I was, so I finished my PhD um, in environmental policy. I was at Duke University. And then, um, so uh, a postdoc, what it is, it's basically, it's not a permanent job. It's usually, um, you know, when you're, you know, freshly graduated, often you don't have um, enough publications or experience Mm -hmm. to get a professor position. Um, that you know, I would say that that would be the most the goal, at least in the social sciences. If you mm-hmm. get a PhD, usually your goal is to become a professor. Um, so then, uh, but then you can uh, get these really great positions where you enhance your skills and you get to work on your publications. Uh, so I actually um, I didn't get a postdoc right after I graduated. Instead, I was um, a staff member, a staff instructor at mm. Duke University. So I was teaching a course, which was also great. Um, I mean, it got me teaching experience. But then, um, so the way that I got it, um, it was a really good fit with what I had done for my PhD research. So I researched, um, I evaluated environmental programs in Mexico. Nice. Um, And this position was evaluating um, a watershed management program in Peru. So I already spoke Spanish and it was, um, I didn't, I almost didn't even have to apply for it because it was such a good fit. It was like very specialized 
and it was like my skills were exactly what they were looking for. So even mm -hmm. though it was um, the job had already been posted, and I contacted the um, the boss later after the deadline had passed, but mm -hmm. because my my skills were such a good fit, um, I got hired anyway. So that wow. was, um, yeah, so that was lucky and it was, um, you know, I'm not saying it happens all the time, but it, it just happened to be exactly like such a good fit. And that's where I am um, to this day. So when you started your PhD, did yes. you have a certain direction of career in mind when you started it or did you just start like just didn't think about it too much? So when I started my PhD, I definitely wanted to be a professor. Um, about two years into my PhD, um, mm -hmm. something happened, like something switched in my brain mm -hmm. and it just, school wasn't interesting anymore. I had, mm -hmm. I was done with courses and I was like, you know what? I'm done. Like I can't be a student anymore. Uh, so instead of quitting, what I did is I made myself finish <laughs> my PhD. Mm -hmm, um, and then I got a job as a postdoc. Um, and now the situation I'm in, I, I, I don't have a desire to be a professor um, wow. in academia anymore. And I can, you know, I can explain why in a minute. Yeah. Um, but basically, um, well, actually, the reason why is that I found out that I'm a lot more passionate about um uh, leading hands-on programs as opposed mm -hmm. to, um, and you know, STEM might be different because I feel like uh, some of it can be very applied and applicable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like you you design a new device and people, you know, that helps people immediately or, mm -hmm. you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But in social science, what often happens, especially if you're not an established professor, you write a publication and, um, you know, you have maybe like 20 people in your field that reads it in the journal. Mm. And then I remember uh, what I'm passionate about is making policy recommendations. Like some of the best moments of my life were presenting in front of, um, you know, high level um, officials in Mexico mm. and in Peru and just getting their feedback and getting them like I have a model for how people behave and how their program works. And then they give me feedback and they're, you know, and that helps me revise it so that, you know, I make it into something that's usable for them. Mm. And that's really um, like if you're if you have a tenure track academic position in the social sciences, um, I mean, this is changing slowly, but it's really, it, you know, it's really publish or perish. So you have mm. to publish and they don't really care if you actually um, like how useful it that is. information is so it's, it's, yeah. it's good for me to um summarize and say that the reason you are not uh very involved in academia or you didn't feel any affinity towards it during mm -hmm. your phd was because you don't think that the work that we, you, you were doing was as impactful as working directly on environmental programs helping people in peru exactly yeah Mm, interesting, interesting point. And um, you also said that something switched when you uh, were during in, during your PhD. What was that something? Because switch tells me like yeah. something impactful happened. I presume. That's yeah. That's um, that's an interesting question. I just felt nothing external happened. Like there was no big life event or mm. anything like that. But I just felt um, like this burnout feeling. 
So in the past, um, you know, like I was the perfect candidate for a PhD mm -hmm. and then for becoming a professor. I mean, I was, you know, just the biggest nerd ever. I would, <laughs> um, I would read books on, you know, social science theory just for fun. That's what I would do in my spare time. You know, like I spent a lot of time, like it was really my passion. So, mm. um, and then when I lost interest in that, it was like the rug had been pulled from under me. It was very destabilizing, actually, because I'm mm. like, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I've been working my whole life. I had this in mind. And now I, you know, this doesn't motivate me um, mm. anymore. So then what I did, um, so how I got through my PhD, actually, I mean, if I was, um, if I could do it all over again. Um, and because I saw it, I saw not finishing a PhD as a type of failure. That's how I saw it. Mm. So I'm like, well, I already have a master's. I could have, you know, graduated after two years with a second master's and then yeah. gotten a job. I could mm -hmm. have done that. But instead, I, I saw it as a failure. So I made myself finish. Um, but what got me through it is I, um, I actually created um, a nonprofit organization within the university. Right. Wow. And we, um, so we recruited um, like student professionals, so engineers, and we had someone from um, a marketing and business student. Mm -hmm. And um, we traveled to Mexico where we helped um, community members. So you have, um, in Mexico, you have very, um, sometimes they're very marginalized communities, but they own uh, vast amounts of forest. So they get environmental subsidies um, and we help them invest those subsidies into um, like a business, essentially. Mm, so, okay. so that was very applied and that actually got me through. It gave me the energy to finish my PhD. But mm. if I was smart, I would have, you know, swallowed my pride and just quit. <laughs> oh, you know what? A lot of people do that. A lot of people yeah. do that. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, I think okay, it's fine. a great point to interject because mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who did start a PhD or a lot of people who finished their master's oh, yeah. go through this period that you went exactly. through. And, uh, and, the, and the ones who don't finish their PhD, they feel like they've quit on something that they, they, they didn't. It's kind of the same similar situation that you're, you're going through. So yeah. I, I guess my question is, at that point, now that you're looking back, what do you think you should have done? Should, I, should you have carried on? Should you have done what you've done, basically? Or should you have just quit at that time? Um, I mean, it depends because right now I, I'm using my postdoc to, um, to gain, yes, I'm also, I, I keep publishing, but I also, uh, gain different skills, hmm. um, because I have a very open-minded advisor. But if I look back, I would have, um, I would have quit because hmm. there's, it was staying in the PhD was mainly motivated by, by pride, basically. But at the end um, of the I, day, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt again. Um, no, I just because because uh, uh, I'm thinking from this aspect as well that you went to Mexico and you wouldn't have done or you wouldn't have started mm -hmm. that nonprofit organization within your university had you That's not right. carried on, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't you consider yes. that to be a win instead of a loss? Oh yeah, it's a win, and like I don't think um, like it's a loss. I, you know, I do have a PhD, which I'm very, still very like happy with. So mm. I don't think I'm, I'm a, at a loss and I'm still happy with how it went down. 
But I'm just saying that um, if you look at my motivation, I wasn't really motivated to um, to carry on into into my PhD um, for it was like the main the, if you look at the main motivation, it was because um, I thought I was going to be a failure and I mm. wished I had not had that thought. And then I guess my advice would be um, don't let those negative feelings motivate your decisions, right? So I would have, you know, like gotten myself to a place where, you know what, like what motivates me? Okay, if I want to start this organization and the PhD allows me to do this, then yeah, it's a good reason for staying into the PhD, which which is ultimately what my feelings transform into. Hmm. But um, initially, it was very much like, oh, no, like, what will people say? Um, yeah. I'll be seen as a failure. Um, I already have a master's. And I, th I think that's not a good enough reason to stay in a PhD program, which is what I'm saying. So I th I'm pretty happy. Like, I'm, I just actually, I'm very happy with my path um, and where I am now. So, yeah, so they were both good decisions um, because I, yeah, like I had shifted my energy and I had, you know, I, I had a purpose. I guess the better question to ask is, what would you have done in those two years had you quit? Um, I would have, well, I'm Canadian, so I would have um, gotten a job at, at a foundation in Canada or in the government, um, or I would have, so, so now what I'm doing, um, I'm also, like, I'm, I'm shifting into uh, more creative nonfiction writing, uh, mm. but I still, you know, I don't take time away from my job to do that, mm. so I would... Um, so, so, you know, I write, um, I study topics of inner beauty and I study historical women who have, you know, qualities that we admire throughout the ages and all that. Yeah. So I would have, um, part of me thinks that it would have sped up that process. So yeah. I might've gotten a job, um, because I didn't do that while I was doing my PhD, I was busy with my, my nonprofit. Mm. So, um, I mean, part of me thinks I, I would have sped up the timeline but you know there's there's no guarantee uh so i could have you know had two masters and you know just worked for someone in the government or something like that but which aren't is you doing that already i'm sorry i'm, I'm so, uh, yeah I, I i just said aren't you doing that already like aren't you working in the environmental policy already aren't you already yes. working in the government right I'm working well I have a I'm working as a researcher at Purdue but yes I work with Peruvian governments so oh, okay. I do this yeah so so in a way um, I'm doing this already but it's not mm. like a permanent government job which is something oh. that could be attractive for for a lot of people mm. um, but you know for me it's um, it's really important to you know to take my time and like um, you know, just maximize my skills. So mm. right now I'm doing exactly what I, what I want. Um, mm. But in a postdoc, and I, I have to say that for the, for the listeners, but in a postdoc position, it's still, they're shaping you to be um, a professor basically. Mm. So you really have to like what I'm doing. Um, like, let's say you, you happen to find yourself in the same position, like you finish your PhD and now you're like, now what? I have no desire of being a professor. Well, um, you can work as a researcher or even during your PhD, but if there's jobs, um, if there are jobs 
in the government or in a foundation or outside of academia that you want, um, mm -hmm. what I do is I print them out, I underline all the skills and experience that they require and that I'm mm -hmm. not getting. And then I go to my boss and I said, hey, they require some management experience, for example, uh, which you mm -hmm. don't really get as a, as a, you know, as a student. Yeah, or as a postdoc. So we are, um, you know, we are working on, you know, getting myself that experience so that I can put it on my resume and really cater my experience, the type of job that I want. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a good strategy if you, cause, because there are a lot of postdocs that want to work for, you know, an in industry um, and, you know, they don't necessarily want to be professors. Mm. So, um, I always thought that postdoc, the direct trajectory to being a professor is 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 to do a postdoc, or to be in a postdoc research position, position presumably, mm -hmm. and then you become um, a lecturer, and then you'll become a senior lecturer, and then you have loads of publications, and eventually you become associate professor and then a professor, if I'm yeah. correct in assuming that, right? So why would somebody want, sorry, you wanted to say something? Well, it's it's mainly like that in STEM. In the social sciences, you can um, you can skip that. Like I I know some I have some colleagues who graduated with a PhD and then they um, they became, became professors. professors. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! Okay, wow, that's yeah. that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. Thank you for it enlightening. Is cool. Yeah, yeah. So, but how? Why would somebody do a postdoc knowing that they cannot be anything else but a professor? I see. Yeah. Well, you can be other things um, aside from a professor and it depends. It really depends on the position. Mm -hmm. um, so if I want to, so my plan, well, I'm in the process, you know, with, with the virus, um, no one is hiring right now, mm -hmm. but I mean, before, you know, the virus hit, I was in the process of applying to a lot of um positions um in at various foundations like i'm a very international person um, like i speak several languages and i have to i i really want to travel with my job so um i'm applying to foundations where they do international development or research so you can um you know i've traveled to peru and i've worked with policymakers so that is really good experience what you will be missing as a postdoc that they might require in mm -hmm. jobs outside of academia is like program or project coordination and management. Mm. Um, so that's a skill that's missing um, when you do a postdoc, but you can work with your advisor, like you can manage some, you know, a group of undergraduate students, for example. Um, you can work with, you know, your boss to make sure you get that experience. So it's not... Um, you know, it's not like it's a bad fit for a job outside of academia, but you, you have to be very mindful because it is basically designed to, you know, to groom you as a professor. Interesting. Okay. Um, and um, you were talking about learning about history and understanding women's role in in various points in history and you want to get into that why have you decided to completely change <clears throat> your focus from environmental policy to to this well it's not see it's not that different um and this is mm. what i do on the side so i'm um like my skill is really i'm a good writer Nice. Um, so I've um, so it's not that different 
Um, I, but I feel like my interests have changed from being very um, academic to being more mainstream. So mm. I still do research. Um, it still involves doing research on historical figures. Um, most of most of the famous ones are actually in France, which I find, which I find quite funny. But I'm also, you know, wow. not surprised at all. Um, but I'm. It's it's all, I've developed this interest because we're bombarded with um, you know images of beauty, mm. and um, you know from the media and and everything. Yep. So. I've noticed that in, um, especially in academia, um, we are, we're told that, you know, those are wrong, like to be, it's, it's almost like assumed that to um, value beauty is wrong. Um, and of mm. course, you have very unrealistic beauty standards, especially nowadays with plastic surgery yeah. that you didn't yeah. have, you know, back then. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, um, and this also happens when I, when I travel to different places, at the same time, you, um, you know, you've had, you have these standards everywhere in the world and in all the time periods. Um, mm-hmm. But in all these places and time periods, you also have women that really stood out and that have managed to create a beautiful life um, mm-hmm. for themselves and to be very successful and very well known, even though they were not necessarily the most beautiful. Some of them were, mm-hmm. they happened to fit into the beauty standards of their time and place, but others, others are not. They just have this, you know, their life has this like romantic quality that they bring to through life, through their attitude um, and through what they do. And I just became fascinated. Um, like I find these women when I travel to Peru and remote villages, there's always this like one woman that's really well known. And she's like, oh my gosh, she's just so powerful and amazing. And she's accomplished so much. So mm. I became a little bit obsessed <laughs> with them because wow. I've, I've encountered them a lot. And I'm just um, doing a bit of research on what they, you know, what they have in common and what gives them that um, I, and, you know, and as academics, we're also cautioned not to romanticize, right? So it's like, oh, you're romanticizing her life. Well, no, I'm not because she's she's actually living it and she mm. has a beautiful romantic life. Um, so anyway, so that's... I guess I have um, so many questions at this point. I just want <laughs> to... I have to I have to stop you because I have so that's many right. questions. So first question is, why why are the... Why, when you did, you did your research, why did you find these women were... For, mainly from France in particular. Why does France come out to you so much? Well, uh, it comes up uh, a lot of historical figures. Uh, so in France, you actually had um, courtesans, which were essentially, mm. um, I mean, they were, you know, they were prostitutes, but it mm. wasn't, um, that was basically an established institution in France. Mm. When, and, how long ago are we talking? Oh, we're talking about the, you know, 1600s um, and a few few hundred years before and after. So it's, you know, it's a a few hundred years. Um, And that was accepted. And it was actually one of the um, probably the only way that women could um, have autonomy over their own lives. Um, And also it was so what what happened is that you had women. who established a salon. So it's like a mm-hmm. salon and you had mm-hmm. the the greatest minds of all of, you know, of France, like the writers, 
the politicians, um, the nobility, and it was both men and women. Mm. They they went there as guests in the salon, um, and they discussed politics, uh, literature, art. And that way, the courtesan also became very educated. Like, they were some of the most educated women um, mm. in France as well. And they owned books. Um, and they they were also, um, you know, yes, you know, they, they had sex with, with mm-hmm. some people. They were very choosy. So they mm-hmm. did have, you know, sex with some men. But they well, also... In exchange um, for money, right? In exchange for money. Okay. But they also provided companionship and mm. beauty in exchange for money. So some men, I mean, there there was this very famous courtesan, and now um, and later she now she's known as a philosopher because she later published um, some books. Her name was Ninon de Lanclos, mm-hmm. and she um, she had four, I think, four types of men. So mm-hmm. she had um, a wait list for her clients. So she had people that she slept with in exchange for money. Um, she had people that were on a waiting list to get to that level. Damn. Then she had people that just paid to be in her presence. <laughs> I'm genuinely fascinated right now. I felt like I could, if right? she was here, I could interview her right now. Right? Wow. I mean, I wish. I wish I could go back in time. And then yeah. she had her, she called them her favorites. So she had people mm. that she had, you know, intimate relationships with and they didn't have to, to pay anything because it was like her, you know, her boyfriend's. What the um, hell? So she has, a, she had a lot of power. <laughs> and, and hold on, so she was she was having multiple relationships at the same time. So she was in like yes. an open relationship, basically, with like loads of people. Yes, and she had a rule that she wouldn't um, date someone for more for more than three months. I mean, paying clients could stay longer, but if she if she had like a favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and that man did not pay for her services. He was, What's the criteria of being a favorite? I wonder. Oh, it was um, it was a genuine love connection. Um, some of these men were, you know, were ugly. They were not appealing, uh, mm-hmm. but they had. She was she was well known. She said that for her, she loved to love. Like that's what people say okay. about her. There, she just. A- loved the you know just love in general Hmm. the the question i have now is Mm -hmm. that how do you break an emotional connection after that then like how do you break my question exactly (laughs) because you know if you're emotionally involved and if you genuinely love someone for like three months even like i I can't even picture myself Mm -hmm. ever like as a man i think i i I, again i'm looking at conventional standards here i'd like to think that it's easier for men to mm-hmm. get over a relationship, oh, yeah. for example, than it is oh, for yeah. a woman. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. that you agree with me on that. So how no, the hell? I, I agree. Do you get over and over again. No, exactly. Yeah, like women have the reputation for getting attached. Um, so I don't know because she lived in the 16 and 1700s, so we can't <laughs> ask her what she thought. But I okay. So here's my opinion. Um, this woman was on a different level like she operated on a different level Mm. um the way she thought the way she the values she held like her under she lived in and that was a time when like women were were burned at the stake for like Mm. you know being promiscuous or cheating but she was you know a very famous courtesan and she had all these lovers and uh she had she was so popular and so adored like no one dared you know like 
you know, she was accused by the queen and, and whatnot, but I mean, ultimately she was fine. But I think these people, like these women, um, they operated at a different level. And my hypothesis is that it was easy for her to break off her relationship because she was, um, to her, these men were like mere mortals. Like they didn't provide enough stimulation for her. Um, she was like a goddess on earth, basically, because she she had different a different understanding of how the world works and what how she How do found. you know that? That's my hypothesis. Um, As in like, when you say different understanding, presumably yeah. she did some kind of research and she published research, you're saying, that you might have read that would have stood mm -hmm. that, that would have made your hypothesis probably true. Yes. So it's like being in love with love. Like for her, love was a game. So she was, she had a passion, which was romance, I guess, and sex. Um, wow. And that's what fueled her. So like some people, you know, they have different goals in life. I mean, some people and many women do want to be a mother and a wife and all that. Mm. And that's their goal. But for her, um, she was just obsessed with seduction and with living out and trying different things. And it was like a game and you can't really experiment if you're with the same person for your whole life. I, I think so. You could experiment a lot easier when we do it with a similar person because you it's can be true. like, it's, it's true, but you wouldn't gain that like famous. I don't know. I, I just feel like for her, what really motivated her in life was to figure out like the game of love, I think. And to, Did she figure out in the end? Well, yeah. I mean, she wrote, and I'm going to misquote her because I don't have a quote in front of no, me. No, that's fine. I mean, she said, she said it takes more skill to make love than to go to war, basically. Um, well, she said something I, like that. Yeah, I think I she figured know. something out. And she was, um, she had a school for people. Um, where men men paid a very heavy price to mm. to learn courtship. Also, mm. if you were a gay man in that time, um, of course it was not acceptable in that time. Mm. Mm. Um, so you go and you go see Ninon, you go see the, her, you go into her school, and she teaches you how to behave around a woman so that you know. And of course, this was only men and the nobility. So um, you know, you go and you learn courtship. And you learn so because ultimately you want to get married and secure your fortune and consolidate, you know, families and all that. So she, I mean, she was open-minded. She didn't care about things like that. So it just tells you like how, um, how differently she thought um, from the regular people that, that were around her. I'm so fascinated yet. So confused at the same time. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Yet, you know, I have so many questions, but I feel like we're going to go into a complete tangent talking about Nino. This know. is a very big tangent from the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I, think, I think you did a wrong PhD. I really feel that way. You no, should have just... I just, see, I disagree. Let me say one thing. It's like getting a PhD enabled me to have um, the research skills and the writing skills mm. to actually talk and write about this. Um, so, so when you write, okay. right, when you write about Nino, where do you publish this writing? I really want to read now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I want to have you on. I'm going to have you on again. We're going to talk about Nino fully 
in detail. Of course. I want to know about more of these women. And she's not the only one. There's like yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. She's one of the most famous. But yeah, um, so I'm working on on um, it's a book project, but I'm nice. thinking because it takes a while. So I'm thinking I will post um, excerpts on social media and send it to magazines but i just um right now i'm still in the research phase but mm -hmm. i will um i will email you uh the That's excerpt awesome. yeah, yeah please do i mean i really want to uh study and understand because of course like you rightly said these women aren't uh publicized at all and i'm the only the most famous woman that i know obviously she's a stem person is was mary curie because she gave her whole life yes um mm -hmm. and and that that, that and uh, you're right uh, there aren't as many famous women uh, that you hear about in especially from that period as well who've done incredible work of their time so I'd, i really would like to know and, and again my question would be why do you think she's famous why do you think she mm -hmm. uh, people should know about her what 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 makes you say that people should definitely know about this woman yeah and marie curie too um and of course very different careers um both women but they all have something in common um well, they, people should know about them because they managed to defy the odds because it was at a time where women were not, you know, women belonged in mm. the home. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, as a woman now, like, you know, I don't face the same type of discrimination that they faced mm. in their days, but I still, you know, and not necessarily as a woman, but as a person, I sometimes have a hard time being confident and believing in myself and going after my dreams. But those women went after their dreams both mm. Marie Curie and Ninon and you mm. know many others that are you know that, that are kind of famous now um people should know about them because they went after their dreams um and they and that's why they're an inspiration mm. that's a very good goal to write a book on I must say because <laughs> I think women even today's world as well are very um underrepresented and um, but I don't blame yeah, patriarchy for that. I don't. I, I do. I do blame historical patriarchy for it. But I think now is the best time to be a woman that that it ever was. And oh, I think yeah, we're going I... towards a much better direction now as well. Where uh, for uh, when it comes to equality for men and yes. women in in workspace or in any other basically places. Um, yes. Yeah. So so going back to your PhD now. I'm, I'm again. This is really weird, but I really want to ask you about your PhD because I want to yeah. stick to the topic. Of course. Um, yes. How the, uh, as a as a child, yeah. Um, when you were growing up and you know you were this nerd in your own mm -hmm. words, as you say. Um, what did you want to become when you grow up? If I was somebody was to ask you, what would you use to answer that question with? Um, a doctor. A medical like a doctor. Medical. A medical doctor. Yeah, now I'm a well, doctor of philosophy. But... Uh, yeah, well, still, still a doctor. Yeah, I know. I, 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 you and I are very similar in that case. I mean, yes, you, you wanted to be a doctor too. Yeah, so because my, my father's a doctor, so I, okay. I come, I come from a family of high achievers. My mother's a double masters, so um, wow, yeah. they, they had, they had massive expectations for me. So, um, so I had to, and plus all of my dad's friends who are doctors, and their kids are becoming doctors as well. So there was a, there's a huge, and plus I, the school I went to, uh, and the school I went to was is one of the best schools in the country, and um, mm -hmm. and the kids over there, pretty much every single, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Again, I don't want to sound racist to my own people, but I'm still will because I know that mm -hmm. that is the case. I'm talking statistics here. Good 50, 50 mm -hmm. to 60% of them, students in that, um, in, 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 in that, that, that school ended up becoming doctors or dentists. So, okay. yeah. 
so, I mean, so, it's not racist. It's just, you know, yeah, it seems like exactly. a fact. Some people yeah. will misconstrue to what I'm saying into, because yeah. I've got to, I've got to think about what other people are listening to. Because some, some I've realized is uh, communication is an art. I can make a mm-hmm. statement and the other person yes. would completely misinterpret it to, uh, to, and, and blow it out. So, so anyway, so, so, so I've, I, I, I always had this external pressure um yes. to, to 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 perform uh, and go towards stem essentially and i'm yes. not saying that i didn't i always generally enjoyed it as well but i never really had a strong affinity towards being um being a, a doctor in particular yeah. i find the, i find the find the um, the vocation very noble and i find mm-hmm. the, the job itself uh, uh probably fulfilling i don't know i haven't really uh, but i've i haven't really obviously been in it but now that i see a lot of my friends who are doctors turn around and say it's too much work uh, and uh, it's very robotic and uh, there's and there's not a lot of uh, interesting patient interactions and all kinds of stuff so it makes me realize in hindsight i've kind of ended up making the right decision for myself by not doing it but yeah, back to the phd Mm-hmm. Back to your PhD with with masters, I realized after doing a masters, like, well, my P, my masters was basically in a lab, so I was kind of in a lab all that time. And I, I like you, I like traveling, I like understanding different perspectives. I'm, my my mind is quite expansive in that case, and um, mm-hmm. so so and and I hated my my masters, and because of that, I think it was a good decision for me to not do a PhD because I knew if I had to do a PhD, it'll actually involve me being in a lab for like three years and I, it will just kill me. Yeah. Basically. It's very different from what you do now. You're very social. I guess. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I enjoyed. So that's why I think entrepreneurship really um, is paying off in, in terms of uh, being, being fulf- doing more fulfilling work, I guess, because um, finding out bacteria and what it does and, and, and like postulating yeah. that to forming a drug and, and, and it takes a very, very long time to have a, a valuable impact. So, you know, yeah. you can, in like 30 years, do, exactly. uh, doing one work and you realize that it meant nothing because none of that was was helpful, basically. So a lot of this, like you said before earlier, a luck uh, is a matter of luck. So luck can be a, can play a big part in you yeah. doing more productive then- work. You have you also have to be a specific type of person because it's very specialized. Mm. So, um, so even now, sometimes I wonder, hmm, maybe I should be a professor after all. But I mm. feel like it takes a specific type of person. So, you know, what you said, like people who work in a lab and you see results in three years, well, you have a certain type of person that loves that work. They're just, mm. you know, Upset. so what's that? obsessed i think oh, love yeah, is not obsessed. Yeah. yeah just like neil was obsessed with love and sex well you have people who are obsessed with um like plant molecules or you have people um like i had a, a professor he's very successful but he was obsessed with un- understanding um like social networks in watershed management and like mapping them on you know on a map and then talking about it and then i'm just listening to his talk and i'm like this is like i wonder what the point is like it's not that interesting <laughs> and he even had a student who asked he's like oh i'm just asking like what what is this useful for and that mm. that professor was like it's like inconceivable to him that other people cannot find it interesting because that's his passion and he's like, well, what it's useful for, it's useful because that's how it is. That's how the world works. And I figured out 
how it works. And I'm telling you, and everybody should know about this. And I'm like, yes, that guy needs to be a professor. I'm not like that. <laughs> so I'm like that's that about, you know, the women that I'm talking about. So that's like, I mean, things are becoming too specialized. Like life is, you know, you need to work hard. So you might as well choose something that you're passionate about because you're going to have to hard, to work hard no matter what, you know? Yeah, but the thing is, you were passionate too. It's just that was, while, yeah. while you were doing your PhD, you realized this is not the trajectory I want my life to go towards. And that's yeah. why you made the decision to not basically become a professor. So I, how do you exactly. differentiate between a passion and an obsession? Um, I don't think there is much of a difference, like passion and obsession. Like I had, it was an obsession for me, but I just, um, I started, so I was, I grew up and I don't know, I think it has to do something. Like I'm going to talk about my personality a little bit. And like, I think a lot of PAGs can identify with this. But um, I was very like shy and introverted and very, very socially awkward. So it pushed me um, like I was a nerd, like it really fit my personality. But I started, um, you know, working on myself and um, I'm like, you know what? I'm actually a very friendly and social person. So as I started working on my personality and on my, um, well, it's not my, you know, the personality, but, you know, the assumptions and um, so basically I'm like, I was shedding away my shyness and my awkwardness and like, you know, doing some, some stuff that were more fun in like the extroverted sense, like hanging out with people, sports, all that. As I changed my personality, my interests started shifting from a very specialized academic interest to a more mainstream interest. So like the, mm. you know, I feel like the women and love, that's like more main, it's more for a mainstream yeah. audience. Well, idea of beauty you were talking about earlier is yeah. very mainstream. So yeah, absolutely. It's very mainstream. Yeah. So my interest actually shifted towards uh, more like, I guess, popular, like as I started becoming more popular, I'm doing like quotation marks, like I started having more friends, engaging more with the world. My mm. interests mirrored my personality which i mm. find very very fascinating because mm. i thought i'm like no doctor uh then i realized i i have a, a skill for writing so that's why i went into social science but i'm i'm like still i'm gonna be a doctor of philosophy um mm. but then that changed interesting so that Wow. Um, so you're saying, you're essentially saying is that the type of interest you have affects mm -hmm. the type of personality you have. Or vice versa. Yeah. Like mm. it was, I don't know what affected what, but um, as I moved, as I, as I like denertified myself, <laughs> like my, my interests became more mainstream. Yeah. It's, for it's those listeners out there, by the way, you can be an extrovert and you can be a nerd. I am proudly, Absolutely. I'm a proud nerd and I'm an extrovert. I'll openly say that, okay? By the way, for those of you feeling left out, yes, listening I to agree. this. Yes, yeah. yes, that's important. But my and question is, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, my question is that what made you, what made you want to do all these things? Was it because you were like, oh my God, I'm too introverted, I need more friends? Or was it like, hmm. I'm sitting here. I'm not doing anything. I'm bored. Let me just read about Nino, and then uh -huh. next, you know, you're you're an extrovert all of a sudden. Um. Well, I'm still not like I'm still introverted. You know, oh. like I'm 
that that sure. hasn't my core of who I am hasn't changed. So, but I'm just saying like my activities are more, um, I've incorporated some extroverted activities into my life. Hmm. So, um, so what happened is that like when you're, you know, being introverted is not the same thing as being shy. I feel like you can, you know, there's, it's not like a flaw to be an introvert mm -hmm. or nerd or anything like that. The problem is that there's a big correlation between, um, being very academic and introverted and then being very like, um, like reserved and stifled and shy and miserable, <laughs> therefore, because you you're like when you're shy, uh, like I was like, I couldn't even go to the like to the checkout counter, like the cashier um or ask for you know a drink order um at starbucks for example i had wow. to rehearse it in in my mind like oh my god there's a person i'm gonna talk to this person here's a script that they have to rehearse is like that's social how anxiety? bad i'm sorry is this social anxiety yeah i think it's social anxiety i was like very socially anxious mm. um and we're talking i mean it's been you know over 10 years ago since i was like that like you know this was it took a while um, to get out of that. But like, that's, you know, for example, that's how I was in high school. Like I had, I needed to have a script if I was going to make a phone call and talk to a person on the phone to ask about store hours, for example, or if I was going to leave a message um, on an answering machine, I needed to have a script because I could not just talk and improvise. It was terrifying. So how the hell did you become this person that you are today? Like you, right now you're improvising. It's not like you're, as yes. soon as I'm asking the questions, you're freezing time and you're writing everything down. Okay, what did he ask? Let me just research that. No, yeah, you're... I'm totally improvising. Yeah. Um, wow. So, uh, I mean, I'm trying to remember. Um, you just have to let go. It's like you you have to, it's almost like it has to become so, for me, like, and I feel like a lot of people were motivated by pain, you know, so you have to um, like you have to realize how unhappy you are. Like I did. I'm like, oh, my God, I am so unhappy. And then I started and then you go through like a period, which in my opinion, it was like kind of it was very it was hell. Like it was not fun at all. But you try to assert yourself so like you overcompensate. So I was very quiet. All of a sudden, I started speaking up. But of course, since I had no experience being really like socially adjusted, it came across as too aggressive, right? But you have to. It's like, and that's why, you know, like I never judge people. Like if someone comes across as like awkward or shy or aggressive, it's like, it's really hard for me to judge them because I'm like, well, I've been there. And that person is like, going through something you know and they have to figure it out so um so yeah like you have to make yourself speak up and you take baby steps um I went it took a lot of courage but I went to like a speech class kind of like a Toastmasters but not quite um so that helped um and it was I was mortified the whole class I was like so I'm like oh my god I'm gonna speak in front of an audience but then I did it and I felt really good about myself. So you have to do the thing first and then you get more self-esteem and more confidence, basically. Wow. So you're talking about, um, earlier you mentioned something about 
you, you, oh yeah, you said, you said you were, um, you weren't happy. Okay. That's yeah. what you said. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering here, if you're, um, an introvert and you love your books and you're reading yes. things and you're doing your research, you're doing whatever you want to do as an introvert, mm-hmm. why would that make you unhappy to, oh, to propel you? Sorry. Sorry. To, let me finish my question. To propel yeah, you to say that I need, basically I need friends in my life. So therefore I'm going to become an extrovert. I'm going to try to do something that is out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, well, well, if you're an introvert and you're with books um, and you're, and you love what you do and you have, and let's say you don't have a, I mean, I feel like there's a correlation between people like that and being, you know, unhappy because they have anxiety, but that's not necessarily like, I feel like, and it's like what you were saying earlier, it's like being a nerd, like that's, that's fine. That's not the problem. Um, so a lot of people, like even like actors and famous people that are, we would think we would not think of them as nerds, like George Clooney. Well, he is a nerd about acting, right? Like people that are very successful, even in very like popular and mainstream fields, they are a nerd. The problem is that I feel like people with social anxiety usually choose that those activities and they choose their books um, because they don't feel like they have what it takes to, to not do that. It's like for lack of other options. And there's nothing wrong with that. Is it's um, so like what I tried to like, I'm still a nerd, right? Even when I research, um, you know, like prostitution in France, like I'm a nerd about that, right? I'm still with my books and my research and my writing. Um, so I feel like we kind of need to separate those things. Um, but I feel like a lot of uh, I see a lot of PhD students and professors and people in academia, they have social anxiety. And it's not because they're academic. It's like, it's, it's more like a correlation. It's not a causal relationship, if that makes sense. So I would say, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a nerd and having books and doing research. But if you're unhappy because of other reasons that are not necessarily related, so like you're, um, I don't know, you have low self-esteem or you're a bit shy or you don't believe in yourself, well, then you, you know, you should, you should address it. And for me, it changed my interests, but I don't think, um, I think um, you have very successful professors that are, um, you can still be in your field and overcome your shyness and still be a professor and still be a doctor or in STEM or you know, do what you do. It's just that for me, it just shifted. And I I can't fully explain why. Maybe. And that's what makes me think that maybe uh, my shyness kind of narrowed the options for me. Interesting. Wow. And then but uh, so so the whole uh, debacle, or I said the whole adventure that you went on is basically to increase the options that you have in your life, essentially, right? And go to the things that yeah. you want to go towards. Nice, nice. I like it. I like it. Yeah, essentially. Okay, so so uh, you talk uh, earlier. You mentioned you talk about your PhD, and you mm-hmm. said you went through a burnout phase. So yes. talk to me about the fact that first things first, you actually enjoyed doing mm-hmm. what you were doing. 
Yes. What is it like being a PhD student that caused you to be completely burnt out? Um, well, it's a lot of work. Um, mm. And I don't, I don't know exactly what caused me to, to be burnt out. But what happened, I was, um, so I went to undergraduate and I did my, my bachelor's um, program and master's program in Canada. Nice. And I was, um, you know, I was at the top of my class. Like, nice. in, I know, can imagine just by talking to you, I can imagine. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you, you're the uh, uh, again, I'm not the psychologist, but you're the type of the type of personality you have is that you know what what interests you, and yeah. um, and then you're, you're the type of person who really would spend hours and hours would studying that same thing <laughs> and, and, and trying to. Yeah, and I'm sorry to say this, but like this is only because I've spoken to you now, and uh, it's 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 fascinating because I'm kind of envious of you at the same you time are, because I'm oh I, 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 because I'm an intro introvert. I, I've got the shiny object syndrome. We're like, oh, that looks nice, and I'm there, and the next thing you know, oh, that one looks even better, so I'm there. So I, 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 <laughs> I like to find things and just move along. Okay, I know I know who Nino is today, and I know you know. So I've learned something. So I, whenever I have a conversation with someone, especially through uh -huh. a podcast, I always try to learn something new, and. It actually lights a spark in me. But I think after a certain point, I think I'll be bored of studying about Nino and her sexual conquests. Whereas you would be like, no, no, I want to know more. So, so, so yeah. Yeah, so you came first. Sorry, you were saying, I apologize. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just want to go back to what you said. And um, it's funny because as a child, like I was the easiest child to take oh, care wow. of. Even as a toddler, like my mom would just like, put me like in a quarter and I would do this like one thing um it, yeah like I was just my mom's like I've never seen someone who can focus like you did like wow. and that was me at like four years old <laughs> so so I feel like it's amazing how you were able to you know like because it's totally true what you said so yeah so that's very um, impressive. I'll take that as a compliment thank you very much but yeah, at the no, same time I'm but I'm envious of you. I really am because my uh, my mother actually thought that uh, I had ADHD because I could run around the house all day long and never stop. And she's like, "What the hell is wrong with this kid?" Um, and I'm the only child, believe it or not. Oh, I don't even yeah. have sisters. And I think I really think my mom made a conscious decision not to have any more of me, any more of people like me in the house. Otherwise, she like, she was like she's almost suicidal. Yeah, absolutely. So. <laughs> So I'm 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 envious of uh, your focus and uh, and at the same time I will actually ask you as well like what causes you to have this sort of energy where you can sit down in one place and just study like crazy like people are you you don't understand you're you're a gem you're unique in that in in that in that in that space Um yeah it's well I had lost like I had lost that focus halfway through my PhD and it was mm. all of a sudden it was like what the hell just happened right it's like mm. it was so destabilizing yeah because I could stay there and read uh right now like I you know because I have hobbies so I make jewelry for example nice. and I remember I spent like eight hours just sitting there making adjustments to this necklace mm. and and then it was an awesome necklace. And I'm like, oh, I still got it. Like, I still have that focus. But it really has to be something that I really, I'm passionate about. So mm. I think 
Um, yeah, like if you ask me to stay there eight hours and look at, you know, research something that I don't really care about, um, it might not happen. But I'm trying to think because that's an important question. And I feel like I want to give like a useful answer and not because, mm-hmm. you know, just saying like, oh, I was born with it. I don't think that's very it's helpful. Really, I think it's necessarily. I, I believe that it's, it's, it's you in your genes. So? Okay. Yeah, but then yeah, you can, yeah. again, you can uh, there. Are, uh, but again, I think there's a uh, me being a scientist myself. I think there's a there's a combination of uh, phenotype and genotype, which basically means that th- yeah. it could be inherent in you, but also you can use an environment to actually c- create uh, focus in your life. So yeah. I wonder if you took any of those steps to make sure that you are fully focused. And like, uh, was there any environmental influence as well? Environmental influence. Um. I don't know. Like, uh, so in my environment, like I work well, like I can focus in any environment. Like I remember like there was, I was doing a group project and we were in a loud coffee shop and people were just, um, it was, that's when I was in my undergraduate and people were like, you know, just joking around, not doing their work. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. So then I just like shut out my brain completely. And I just started working for an hour. And then my friends were like, "Uh, is she in a trance or something? Like, is she okay? And then I'm like, all right, guys, assignment is done. I'm out of here. Um, (laughs) You're a magician? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's just not putting up with the bullshit. It's like, it's almost, it's like you have to have an attitude like, you know what? This is what I want. I'm going to get it. Like, I don't want to spend five years doing it. I just want to do it already and then I can move on. But then uh, if I was in the same situation as you were, like in the coffee shop, Mm -hmm. I would like, um, friends, you guys wait here, have some coffee because you're in a coffee shop. Let me just go somewhere quiet to a library maybe and I'll Mm -hmm. be back in an hour. And probably that's what I would have done. But you're like, no, 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 we'll just sit there and we'll, I'll just shut everything out. Like this is, this is unbelievable. This is something inherent, definitely. But it's like, I didn't even hear the noise. Like, I just, it's like when you're meditating, I guess. Like, it's funny because mm. I'm actually, I try meditating and I'm not very good at it. But then when I do, but then I can focus in like other contexts. Uh, so it's like, it's like, you know, you know, that time, those times where you're so absorbed in an activity mm. and then like five hours or maybe not five hours, but like two hours go by and you're like, oh my gosh, look at the time it's I can't believe I spent like two hours doing this like you mm. lose track of time mm. like that's that's what oh, that's yeah, what yeah, it yeah. is yeah mm. uh, you, you normally I know it's called a flow state that's what the it's flow, called right yeah uh-huh. so you you're in the flow state basically but the, yeah. the people you know what uh, the the chance of somebody accessing the flow state is so small on average but mm-hmm. it seems like with you it's very easily accessible like you can easily achieve that state uh, because you can be in a coffee shop and you can achieve flow state like i can never ever do that i need utter peace and absolute quiet for me to be for me to be able to like be in my own element but and i'm mm-hmm. like, i'm extremely envious but the question i really have on this this is a from my side if i'm sitting outside if i was your mentor or a teacher or somebody who's looking at you as a child i would yeah. say this is a talent <clears throat> that is not found commonly so I personally think, and I'm again, maybe it's my 
virtue what virtuous nature i don't know i always think that any talent that you have is your responsibility to do something valuable with that talent and benefit mm-hmm. the world before you die essentially right yeah. so did you ever wonder what kind of work you can do with this with this talent with your focus that you have yes well i thought originally when i started my phd i'm like i'm going to be this awesome professor mm. and it would have worked if i had stayed interested um mm. in the whatever so so i was very into like social theory like critical theory and it's very abstract and nuanced and no one really understands it but i'm like i'm going to be this awesome professor and i'm going to publish and write books mm-hmm. on this um but what but now i've lost interest in that so what i bring to the world now is um well it's with my creative nonfiction writing stories about mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. and then also i you know like if i if i do get a job at a foundation or you know like if i because i still like to do international development work um mm-hmm. like whatever task i have i'm gonna do it like 150 percent because i can mm-hmm. focus like mm-hmm. i don't believe that you have to have this like grand plan i feel like and again it's by studying these women it's like none of them had really like Oh, I want to be the next. I don't know, like yeah, um, Einstein, maybe yeah, okay, Cleopatra. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, what they did is that they chose something that really interested them, and by be like, I I personally believe that by bringing uh, being present in the task you do now, that creates a ripple effect. Hmm. So if I have, um, you know, like a small job, if you can't do your small job correctly how are you going to do the big job you know what i mean so i feel like the path will open up to you but you your job like you have to be present in the moment i think um, the, the, in a nutshell you can say um you want to change the world the best question to ask yourself if you want to change the world the question to ask yourself do you even make your bed how clean is your room you know these kind of things are important and then do you have positive influence in your family are you having a positive with your brothers and sisters are you are you doing good work in your community before starting change the world we have to start from the smallest part and kind of branch out you're you're absolutely right you're 100% right on that i think the yeah, better question sorry go on oh no i just said that's what i think okay the question that i have for you now is that i know that you can focus on a task and you can do that really well but there's mm-hmm. a, there's a I, I, is it a myth or i'd say it's um it's a stereotype of some kind that people say that women can multitask better than men. So mm-hmm. can you multitask? And if you can, how the hell do you manage that given the fact that you can focus so well on one task? Well, um, I, oh my gosh, and this is going to sound, it might not sound politically correct, but I feel like go, ahead, go, for, uh, it, go for it. I have like, like the focus. Well, my yeah. mom, she jokes. She's like, you're like a man you need to like be in your cave but i'm also a woman which means i can also multitask so it means i'm better (laughs) i don't even like i don't i can't even begin to dissect this seriously um but no i can't i can't multitask it's a different mindset like because okay so an example where i multitask in social science research um i do a lot of field work So I go, I'm thrown, like I fly into this remote village that has issues with the government and with watershed management. And I just, um, it's constant 
problem solving and thinking on your feet and approaching strangers and asking for directions and asking if I can interview them and record what they're saying and explain my study. And then it's like you network and you meet people. Um, and of course, you know, in different countries, also when you travel, like things always go wrong, right? It's never as planned. Um, so I can multitask. Um, like I can have a conversation. Like I'm really good at translating, um, for example, uh, from English to Spanish. Like in my household growing up, we, I, and I think the multi, like I'm very multitask uh very able to multitask when it comes to languages and communication um and i think that's because i grew up in a trilingual household so i was born in romania but uh, my parents immigrated to canada when i was four years old and then i went um to french school like school in french and then english is really like my third language and then i learned spanish so i can very easily like communicate ideas like I can understand what someone is saying um, I can read body language so I'm always like the connector and the translator in the group and I feel like that's very like a like a female quality like multitasking communication so I'm 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 very good at that but I think it helped like the fact that I was trilingual from you know a very young age I think you can speak English Spanish and French right and, Rom and Romanian so that's isn't that quadlingual because you're four of them? Oh yes, yes. But I grew up like Spanish. I learned later, so I grew up speaking uh, French, English, Romanian in the house, um, and I never really had to learn those languages. Like you know, it was just through osmosis. You know, it's like when you're a kid, you just learn. And then I had to actually study because I I only learned Spanish when I was in high school. So yeah, so I'm quadrilingual now, but I grew up. Uh, in my household, uh, my sister and I, we would like combine sentences, um, like different words from different languages. And then I remember when I moved to the U.S., I'm like, oh, my gosh, I I have to only speak one language now. That is so weird. Where do you live in the U.S. again? Indiana, right? Right now it's Indiana, yeah. Do you have, but do I you lived have... in North Carolina for a while. Okay. Don't you have Mexicans there or uh, like people who speak Spanish? Because I know a lot of the South uh, speaks a lot of Spanish, don't they? Yes. Um, here in my city, so I'm in West Lafayette, Indiana, we don't have very many. Um, I mean, not not enough that I can practice with. We have international students that, you know, I can speak Spanish with, but usually they want to speak English because, you know, they're here for this reason, Right. So, and also it's like in a professional environment, you, it's usually we speak English. It would be because like when you talk about your research that you do in English, it's hard to change to a different mm. language. Fair enough. Okay. Let me go back to a question that answer that you gave me before you said you wanted to become a doctor, right? What were your primary motivations to becoming a doctor? Cause I think I have a follow-up question. But I want to ask this question first to clear up all the other yeah. stuff. Interesting. Yeah, I remember since I remember um, this, you know, I have very vague and very few memories from Romania because I was so young. But mm. one of the memories was me telling my grandma that I want to be a doctor. Um, mm. That's a good question. I had similar experience where I wanted to become a pilot when I was uh, a pilot yeah, at, at, your, at, at, at four years old. And uh -huh. I, guess, I guess I gave up that dream. I didn't give up that dream, I guess. I can still learn to become a you pilot. 
big. But okay. I used to see pilots flying on TV and be like, oh my God, wow, that would be really cool. <laughs> so I guess you probably had similar experience. Okay, so 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 you so why so there was no why there. I guess there was like mm. I just want to do it. I don't know. Yeah, I wish I could tell you. Maybe huh. And maybe this I'm just speculating. I don't know, but my my family um was very like overprotective and cautious which mm. means that every time i had a cold it was like oh my god the child is sick so i mm. i think i came in contact with doctors mm. um a lot mm. and then being a doctor is like one way that i could have like power i guess over you know myself and other people so maybe that conditioned me but you know like i'm just speculating i don't know like okay. So there was no yeah. clear reason in your head as to no. why you wanted to be a doctor. So no. a lot of people. So this is what th- th- this is where the question comes in. The question actually asks. The question I have is about the stability of being a postdoc in a university. Stability of the mm-hmm. job, security of the job, and um, and the, and the kind of pay you get being in that role. Essentially, the mm-hmm. most people actually become doctors. Most people actually want to, uh, who are clever, of course, want to become doctors are because of these reasons. A, it's noble. B, the job is yeah. stable and secure. Three, you're making an impact by by obviously delivering healthcare to to people yeah. who need it. Essentially. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so if I was to uh, if I was to ask you the question, obviously most people become doctors, and I'm I'm gonna ask it in a way. Most people become doctors because they 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 their parents think like, okay, okay, my kid's gonna be rich, and the kid yeah. kid all thinks that too well i'm going to be rich basically because yeah. i'm going to get i'm going to earn loads of money the question becomes uh, once you become a professor or a postdoc what's the pay like and mm-hmm. is it a secure job is it a stable job um and anybody who is doing a phd right now um who is considering becoming a postdoc what what are the key things that they should know about mm-hmm. the role good and bad okay so um, there are a lot of questions i'm sorry yeah yeah no, that those are really good questions. Okay, so first of all, a postdoc is not a very high paying job. It it depends. It can range from like forty five thousand to like sixty five thousand, I think, or maybe it depends. Yeah, like it depends on 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 your field. Usually in STEM, they pay a bit a bit more. Um, for a professor, the pay scale, uh, once you reach, it's around $100,000 and you you reach more, I think you can reach close to $200,000, but that's when you're old and, you know, you're fully established. <laughs> old and wrinkly. Um, yeah, so it's like, well, what's the point of having money? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, but I think in STEM, you can also have like patents and you can do consulting which brings additional income um so it's not it's not badly paid but it's you know like professors like there's a joke um and it's like well you become a professor if you hate money (laughs) because for the amount of work is it true in the uk 100 percent. i mean yeah we get paid less than that by the way we postdocs get paid less than 45 and mm-hmm. definitely, obviously, definitely less than sixty-five, and yeah. definitely less than hundred thousand uh, U.S. dollars. I think. Oh, I, I think okay. if I was going to do a PhD, I'd probably be thinking, okay, I need to go to the U.S. because <laughs> it looks yes. like uh, hundred thousand is a is a nice number. Um, to be honest, yeah, with you. I mean, you won't reach that number. It's like less, but you can, you know, you can live very comfortably. Um, of course. it's yeah, 
Exactly. And was that one um, of your defining factors to change your um, change your vocation essentially? No, that was not a deciding factor because to me, um, it's more important to, I mean, it's the, I don't have a problem with the pay because it's high enough. It's good enough. But what I do have a problem is you're expected, um, you know, like academia is changing. Like I know when I was trying to decide whether to stay in academia and become a professor or to just, you know, do my postdoc and, and then look for a job elsewhere. Um, a lot of professors were saying, well, it's not what it used to be. So um, you have a lot of, you don't just, you know, if you have a passion for research and publishing, like that's no longer sufficient because right now you have to manage a lab and you have to, it's like the, you don't have enough time to think almost um, mm. because it's a lot of busy work, um, at least in the US, that's the way it is. So um, one thing that that's very sad, and I like, I hope it's not true. I hope I'm wrong about this, but I feel like, you know, how you have um, very like these seminal texts or articles mm. that were like written, you know, maybe 50, 100 years ago by like these great thinkers um, who had time to sit down and think. Um, right now with the publication cycle, I feel like we're seeing fewer and fewer really great insightful articles because there's so much pressure to publish just mm. for the sake of publishing. That's so cool. it's not very theoretically interesting. Um, like a lot of um, uh, articles that I find very stimulating were mm. written, you know, like de decades ago. Like there was, um, I don't know if you know Ronald Coase, like Coase no, theory. Please, he's, please um, he's used... Um, like he, he came up with like a Kosian arrangement, basically. So um, it's used in the legal um, studies field a lot. So oh. basically, um, you don't like what he's saying is that if you have a neighbor mm -hmm. that's um, bothering you, well, mm -hmm. it's more costly for society in general. If you go, if you complain to the state and you bring in the police and blah, 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 when in reality, you could, and this is a theory, like people don't do this in real life. So mm -hmm. you can have, you can enable bargaining between the neighbors. And let's say your neighbor um, does something you don't like. Well, you can pay your neighbor to stop. And the amount you pay your neighbor is less costly to society than if the government no had to bring the police because that's costly. So as a society, you would want to enable like, um, yeah. bargaining between individuals as opposed to always having the state take care of everything. Now, of, of course, course, there's a lot of like problem, like in real life, you're not going to pay your neighbor to be quiet. Like that's unethical. <laughs> like, I feel like I should be able to, you know, call on mm. the state to help me out. But that's like in, mm -hmm. in theory, just like the idea that individual bargaining is less costly mm -hmm. to society. Like, mm -hmm. so that's like an idea that's used, you know, today. And this scholar he wrote maybe two or three articles in his lifetime but they're mm. so meaningful and so impactful that they're still used to this day but this guy with his brilliant mind there's no way he could have made it now like as a as an academic because he would have had to publish like a hundred articles right mm. so maybe he you know like like i don't know if it's very clear 
yeah, what I'm you're saying. right. You're right. He wouldn't. Yeah, I get it. I completely. He wouldn't have enough time to process and understand and kind of formulate his his arguments and come up with these um these 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 hypotheses essentially um to be able to kind of have a more impactful and meaningful work. You know. Yeah. Or maybe he would have. He would have come up with an article, but he would have had to keep up his publication um mm. rate as in yeah, addition. That's true. And I would also say that, I guess, because we are all becoming academics, all of us right now, I think we're more educated now than we were ever were. Yes. Um, and of course, that rate is still not high enough, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think that expectations for people to read these things have also increased as well. Before, somebody like Mr. Kozian would come in and, mm-hmm. and, and put something there, and then only a handful of people will write, read it. But yes. now... If something like this would come out and it goes mainstream because of the media, everybody would read it. Everybody would understand it. You know, yeah. like when Spanish flu happened in 1920s and over 50 million people actually died. Um, mm-hmm. I'm calling it Spanish flu, not because it was Spanish. Uh, so <laughs> don't kill me, people. Um, I, I'm, just, uh, I'm just saying uh, that a, a lot of people didn't even know they even had it and they passed yeah. away. And now exactly. everybody knows, who even doesn't have COVID knows that there is COVID out there. Yes. You know? yeah. So, mm-hmm. so I, think, I think information is, go, is being made or being created uh, or, or, or is being transferred at faster rate than ever before. And it's only going to exactly. get faster. I mean, we're going to the point where we're downloading information to our brain by in having chips being installed in our brain. So we're yeah. getting to that level now. So if anything, this is going to go higher and higher so the question becomes is how do we now uh, disconnect and focus on what matters and you would be the best person to speak about that because you are a master at focusing oh gosh (laughs) how do you focus on what matters um all right so i feel like the reason why i was able to focus um yeah i think there's like this like natural thing you know that that I, you know, some people are naturally like more ADD like and have more energy, like, you know what I mean? Um, but then I think I always had this self belief in myself that I can do it. I can, I can solve it. Hmm. So I think that that would be a really helpful belief to adopt when you're trying to, because there's all this noise, right? You're like, what should I do? Um, but you know, I think, Ideally, you would choose a task that you're very passionate about, and mm. then you focus on it. And then if you get, you know, you, you're responsive to feedback, and you modify your approach if it doesn't work. Um, but w- no matter what, no matter where you are right now, just like try to try to like immerse yourself in the activity without resisting it, basically. It. And even it. if it's boring, at first, Persist. it's like just push through it and that's how you reach like that flow and like your mind then is like okay i trust you so i can like go to sleep and then two hours later like you're like oh whoa i've been like cleaning my bathroom for two hours but it's awesome you know (laughs) (laughs) well it happens when i clean (laughs) well that's what there's there's a there's an actual theory on this as well i can't remember the name it says that you need to do more tasks that are boring when more boring and menial tasks that you do mm. more you, um, you you develop this thing called resistance essentially against mm. the against against this force that's stopping you from 
um, from doing the task that needs to be done essentially so for example like i run a company now and yeah. for that i have to file taxes now i hate filing taxes it's one of the most boring stuff in the world um but i know that it's one of the tasks that needs to be done and mm-hmm. because the fact that it needs to be done otherwise i will have no company is the motivation right. factor for me to carry on doing this over and over again so so i think creating that also allows you to focus on 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 the things that needs to be done but like, but then again um uh, the question then becomes like how do you determine what what matters you know yeah. and again we, yeah. i'm going to end up coming philosophical now we're going to this is going to end up becoming going into another trajectory um yeah. but again i asked you a question earlier uh, which yeah. i haven't got complete answer for what are the things what are the key things that you you messages that you would have um or qualities that you think a postdoc should have in order to su- su- be a successful um a yes. professor or a postdoc person basically yeah, yeah in any job in your postdoc in your professor or if you don't want to be a professor yes um yes okay so oh there's so many things but wow um okay as a postdoc um you're a fresh you know student like you're fresh from your phd basically like relatively speaking so um often people still act like a student in their jobs Mm. but that's wrong because as a postdoc you've earned your phd and you're Mm. like you're a peer you're on the same level as the professors you're on the same level intellectually as your boss Mm -hmm. you know but a lot of people still act like students in their postdoc and those people are not going to get jobs as a professor uh, they might get jobs, you know, like outside of academia, maybe something lower paid. But um, I and I, I see a lot of people um, as postdocs in my not necessarily in my department, but just like, you know, in, in the university. So mm. they go like as a postdoc, you still have an advisor that's your boss, but they it's not the student advisor relationship. It's very different. They're more like your boss, you know, which you would have anywhere. So a lot of postdocs, um, instead of taking ownership of their own ideas, they go to the their boss, the professor, it might be like an associate professor, a full professor, and mm-hmm. they expect the professor to tell them what to do. Interesting. Um, and I, um, as a student, I never, like, I always had my own ideas. Like, I remember I've even, like, argued with professors until they saw things my way but I'm like that's but and I'm not saying you should argue like you should definitely listen to feedback because they have more experience than you so but at the same time you shouldn't behave like you're a student and you're waiting for the professor to give you a task and then you do it and you're like oh is this good is this good no no no. like you know what to do um take ownership take ownership. And, and, and how do you know this is happening? Well, a lot of postdocs, they complain. They're like, well, my boss told me one thing. And then they told me something that's completely opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next week we met, that's not always, but that can be a sign that you're not taking ownership. And you're just going with the whims and limited, you know, memory of your of mm-hmm. your boss. Uh, that's a sign if that happens to you, like, I've never had that happen to me. Like, I've never had a professor uh, be like wishy-washy on me because I had very clear ideas that I made sure to communicate to the professor. Mm. Um, and it was always clear. 
Mm. Um, so I never had that issue, but a lot of people complain about that. I've had um, that problem. I've had the, I mean, I'm a victim, not victim. I'm the culprit. I'm the culprit. Sorry. I'm the culprit. Uh, because <laughs> I, I, I was expecting my professor, my supervisor to tell me what to do next, basically. But yeah. I, this was when I was doing my master's and what, cause, and plus maybe because I didn't enjoy what I was doing in the first place. Yeah. I was just expecting him to tell me because I was like, exactly. what, what am I supposed, supposed to do? But you're absolutely right. And that is very valuable because I remember, because now that you talk about it, I remember people who were doing better than me, um, who I looked up to as well. Um, yeah. and, and they were, they were very, they used to take control. So they, they were, mm-hmm. they used to, they used to manage their own projects and rarely ever they used to have meetings with their professors or discussing yeah what's going on in the project basically unless the professor himself has asked them to to tell them what's going on essentially exactly so, so that's very valuable thank you anything else yeah it's very val- yeah um and also and that's related to this to this first point but um yeah it's not really the quality of your idea of course you you know you have to have a certain level of like intelligence and good ideas and you have to be competent but mm-hmm. it's not always the people with the best ideas that succeed um, and then become professors. It's mm-hmm. like, it's how you communicate your idea and taking ownership of it. And like, if someone challenges you, you're able to stand your ground while at the mm-hmm. same time taking feedback. Because uh, I remember, um, you know, I always had clear ideas, but sometimes I was, you know, shy. And I that created a lot of self-doubt in mm-hmm. me. And meanwhile, you have someone who's more um, at ease in front of, you know, in front of people. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they just said something that's really like inaccurate because I'm, I've done more research. Um, I've put in, you know, more hard work, but yet they take all the credit because they're confident. Mm -hmm. So I think confidence in your ideas, like just, just like, you know, you don't have to have the best, you don't have to have researched that topic for 10 years before you can speak confidently about it. Mm -hmm. Just own it. Uh, which you know is very similar to what I said to what I said before, but okay. that's um, that's like another thing. And then a third thing would be, um, you know, like have a life outside, like have hobbies. Um, and I would try my best to keep a schedule. I mean, it doesn't have to be nine to five. It can. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of split days sometimes because sometimes I need a break in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. But don't have that student lifestyle when you work all the time and you don't have any boundaries because I think that also leads to burnout. And Mm. um, some of the, even when I was doing my PhD, some of the most successful people um, as PhD students and same as postdocs and that that got jobs as professors were um, parents, like people with families. Um, Wow. And it's very counterintuitive because like they have a lot less time than the rest of us, but Mm. they just had a a clear and regular schedule and boundaries. And it's by doing a little bit of work on a regular basis consistently. That's what gets you, um, you know, far as opposed to like the student mentality is like, oh, okay. I, I'm not going to do any work for two days because I'm tired, whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I have the whole weekend and I'm going to work the whole weekend because, you know, that's, that's not really conducive to success. Mm. I don't find because you should have, like, you should treat your life as if you had a family in a way, but you mm-hmm. even if you don't have a family, you have friends, you have hobbies, 
you go to museums, you go to movies, you go to restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that forces you to have working hours. And mm-hmm. it's not really like the schedule per se. It's like it just forces you to do work consistently for a few hours every single day, like five mm-hmm. days a week. Like I don't work evenings and weekends. That's like my um, Your time. Yeah, that's my time. And I've been, I've gotten a lot more things accomplished by working consistently, even if it's like an hour a day, Mm. as opposed to waiting for like when I have eight hours, a chunk of time, uh, because that never happens. Then you get overwhelmed and like you get distracted and then you can't focus, you know? True. Invaluable, invaluable information. Anything else? Um. Uh, yeah, like just, you know, just be smart. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. I'm sorry. Wish you like that. (laughs) But be smart in the way that like ask for what's yours, like just plan where you're going. So it would have been easy for me to just coast on this postdoc. Mm. But now that I know that I want a job outside of academia Mm. and a lot of these jobs require, um, like management. Yeah. yeah, like other skills, go and talk to your boss and and say, hey, can I manage a group of undergraduate students? Mm-hmm. And then I can put that on my resume. Don't like you need to create like don't be shy about actively creating your, your own job description because mm-hmm. the professor is like usually overwhelmed. It's like they're going to be thankful that you're taking your job and your future in your own hands as opposed to just mm-hmm. waiting them, you know, there for for yeah. them to tell you what to do right. um, and they want to help you you know so that would be mm. my advice that's brilliant um, I think one of the last um, questions that I want to ask you is that what's your mission in life now what is your particular mission <laughs> oh man um, I, I don't think I've ever said it out loud because it sounds really ridiculous maybe but, it isn't ridiculous. Um, come on share it but, it's not no it's not ridiculous um and i will sh- i will share it but it's um i want to bring in a way like you know just a figure of speech but like bring heaven on earth um so so what do i mean by that i want to um um you know just do my best to create a life that is meaningful and fulfilling and with good, you know, good, a lot of it is what we already talked about, like good boundaries Mm -hmm. and focusing a lot of, you know, just using my focus to make the little moments enjoyable. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I've heard as he was a, he's a spiritual leader or life coach. He said, um, play the cards you've been dealt well And Mm -hmm. soon you'll get better cards. So that's my philosophy. It's like, I just, whatever I have, even if it's unpleasant, whatever, I just do the best that I can. But I also adopt the positive attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, So like you bring heaven on earth, like even if you're scrubbing the floors, you're not thinking, oh, this sucks. You're Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, I'm so awesome. You know, like, Mm -hmm. look at me scrubbing the floors. Like it's, you know, there's a very romantic quality about Cinderella and all these fairy tales, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not about, it's like, there's a lot of beauty in doing everyday tasks beautifully, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. I guess that's that's my mission. That's very true. That's lovely. I mean, and unique at the same time, because people have grand goals, like I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You're like, do daily tasks well. 
and do them with perfection. And once you, and, and it basically focus on yourself and focus on bringing light to the world. And more yeah. you bring light to the world, more your world will become heavenly, essentially, is what you're, what you're trying to say. Um, exactly. And the opportunities will come. Um, um, yeah. I yeah. believe that it will happen. That's very, that's amazing. And uh, I don't know what to say. I'm honestly, uh, such a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you giving me an hour and 30 minutes of your time and telling me all these amazing things. And, and I've le- had such a good time actually learning about so much or, or from Nino to um, <laughs> how to, how to do a PhD essentially and how to kind of, um, k- kind of uh, um, to have management skills to install watersheds in Peru. So honestly, it was it was unbelievable, uncozy in arrangement. Like this is unbelievable. I've, I've made loads of notes, and um, it's been such a fantastic conversation. And and thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And you know what? I'm I even just about talking to you. I already know my next topic for my podcast, which will be with yeah, you, if you don't mind. Which will be yeah. to to talk about historical women in. Yes history based historical women in history i would love that oh yeah. my gosh yes yes yeah so we we'll, we'll talk been about such that. a pleasure yeah it's Always been such a pleasure been. talking to you and it's uh it happened again like time flew by i look at the timer yeah, and it's already an hour and a half so yeah so thank you so much yeah like Always it's, it's fun because i can like you you can talk about such a wide range of topics which is mm-hmm. really interesting I think I realized when I started the podcast is that no one person is just that one person, if you know what I mean. Like your job is not you, you know, you are, uh, you know, uh, there's there's so many multifaceted people in the world who, yes, they do their job really well, but they have something within them, just like you, you you know, you're not look at look at the uh, you could you i can create like rux version one rux version two rux version three <laughs> rux version four. you know what i mean like you have so much to offer to this world and um yeah. and it's kind of sad that once you do your phd you, like you were talking about specialism earlier you become so specialized that you can't talk about anything else because anything yeah. else wouldn't matter and yeah. um and that's that's really sad um, and I, I think like what the work that you're already doing and the work that you do in your own time, like making jewelry and, and studying these women is incredible work and it should be highlighted and, sh- and people should know about it. And that's why I, I guess um, the flow of the podcast is always quite, um, uh, I would say, um, generic in a sense um, mm-hmm. and not very, very specialized right, as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. So that's why the questions kind of bounce from one point to another point. But I, I really appreciate you coming on and and honestly, um, such a such an enlightening experience and I'd love to learn more from you. And uh, yeah, I'll see you in the next one then. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Take care. Bye. This was Vital Educators Podcast by Ahmed Saki. Hope you enjoyed. Please follow or subscribe for more content every week.